This episode is sponsored by BAE Systems, the global leader in next-generation electronic warfare systems. With more than 60 years of experience and 33,000 people as part of its global defense, aerospace, and security business, BAE Systems electronic warfare systems are found on the most advanced military platforms in the U.S. and around the world. Learn more at baesystems.com EW. Welcome to the History of Crows, a podcast on the evolution of electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO, and the men and women, the crows, who change the way we conduct military operations and the way we live around the world. The History of Crows will help you navigate the intersection of military history, technology, and scientific discovery through insights and stories from the people and warfighters who know how to fight in the electromagnetic spectrum. We take you through the important discoveries, inventions, battles, and developments that make the Crow motto true, to be the first in and the last out in any military operation today. The History of Crows is brought to you by the Association of Old Crows, or the AOC, an international professional association of people who are experts in electromagnetic warfare and signals intelligence. To learn more about the AOC, please visit www.crows.org. Thank you for listening. July 1940, a little over a year before the attack on Pearl Harbor. World War II was ravaging Europe. The Holocaust was devastating the world. Hitler's Germany was conquering countries at a rapid pace. It came time for Hitler to focus on the last country that stood in the way of conquering all of Europe, Great Britain. And so the Battle of Britain ensued. This battle and the ones that would follow completely changed the momentum of World War II for the Allies. The reason for this? Well, it has everything to do with the influence of radar, electronic warfare, and the tactical strategy behind them. In today's episode, Beam Wars, we'll hear the story of how electronic warfare was forever cemented into military operations. Radar historian Dr. Phil Judkins from the University of Leeds of the United Kingdom will walk us through the Battle of Britain from July 1940 to October 1940. The Blitz and the Beam Wars. Prior to Pearl Harbor, the United States didn't have a thorough enough command and control when it came to radar. It was a different story for Britain, though. They had been planning and preparing, so when the Battle of Britain began, they took on a never-before-seen battle strategy. The Battle of Britain, fought mainly over southeast England in 1940, was the first time that a battle between two nations, in this case Britain and Germany, was fought entirely in the air. The first time that a bomber fleet had faced defenders with radar fully integrated into and controlling their fighter and AAA defenses, and the first time that both radar jamming and counter-radar bombing were employed in an air battle. The German attackers, the Luftwaffe, 
had a clear goal, destroy the British Royal Air Force and clear the way for a seaborne invasion. The two forces faced each other, both ready to employ radar jamming and counter-radar bombing. But their preparation for combat couldn't have looked more different. To achieve this aim, three German air fleets with bases from Norway to northern France deployed almost 2,300 aircraft, 1,260 bombers and 1,030 fighters, which faced the RAF's fighter command of 900 aircraft. However, Germany had very poor operational intelligence. Two Elint missions flown before the war had failed to find clear evidence of radar, while British fighters had in fact trained with its radar-based early warning system from two years before the war, and British codebreakers had begun to break the important German Enigma coding machine. The British were ahead of the Germans due to their operational intelligence and smart planning. They had completely developed a system to track incoming German bombers and respond by notifying and distributing fighter aircraft. With data from their long-range early warning radar, Chain Home, RAF ground controllers could track German bombers from their takeoff and give RAF fighters sufficient warning to take off in time to climb to interception heights and be guided into favorable position for interception. It didn't matter that the aircraft only had crude metric wavelength radar, which wasn't very useful in detecting German aircraft miles away. RAF pilots didn't even need to spend long hours flying standard patrols, wearing out both the fighter engines and the pilots themselves. With the long-range early warning radar system, pilots were given enough time to respond to an attack and then rely on the often beautifully clear sky to spot their opponents. It was this well-thought-out command and control that gave them an advantage. The British had to conserve their limited resources, particularly of trained pilots. So at first, in June and July, the RAF met German daily attacks, first on ships in the English Channel, and then on RAF airfields, with small numbers of fighters. The main attack on the 13th of August was preceded by attacks on radar stations and fell on forward RAF airfields. Later attacks struck inland. A German pincer movement to attack both the north of England from Scandinavia and the south from France was defeated by ground control using chain home radar, which covered the entire English south and east coasts. The Luftwaffe suspected the Royal Air Force had radar, but they didn't know just how integrated it was into British air defenses. The German head of signals and radar, Wolfgang Martini, managed to arrange for dive-bombing attacks on some radar stations. The aerial masts proved very resilient to bomb blast, and the damaged equipment was substituted by mobile radars trucked in. The Germans continued to hear radar transmissions, thought that little damage had been caused, and ceased their attacks. After ceasing these attacks, the Luftwaffe tried a different approach. But they'd find that the British had thought ahead and implemented something the Germans weren't prepared for. Martini had arranged for powerful jamming transmitters to be placed on high ground in North France. However, long before the war, the British had guessed that an enemy would try to jam their radar, and so built into their radar receivers several different circuits to minimize the effects of jamming. When the Germans began their jamming campaign, the British operators had switched in their anti-jamming circuits as they'd been trained to do 
and the jamming had relatively little effect. The Royal Air Force's success at countering jamming forced the Germans to change their strategy yet again. The Luftwaffe had followed a sensible strategy of attacking RAF airfields, command centers, and communications. And had that been continued, the outcome for the RAF would have been in grave doubt. However, following early attacks on London, the RAF bombed Berlin. Little damage was done, but it stimulated a strategic switch to the Germans bombing London, particularly after the 3rd of September. This relieved the pressure on the RAF fighter airfields and allowed some respite for the exhausted pilots. The German strategy change had little effect on British radar, mostly because Germany's intelligence assessments were consistently unreliable. Fortunately, attacks on chain home radars had ceased. But because the attacks on London took the form of massed attacks by hundreds of bombers, covering many miles of sky in breadth, height and depth, the crude chain home was sometimes overwhelmed and incapable of giving accurate readings. However, German aircrew, who received daily unreliable German intelligence assessments, that the RAF strength was almost exhausted, but then found that more RAF fighters were always somehow in position to meet their attacks, were becoming disheartened, and their losses were mounting. The German dictator, Adolf Hitler, concluded that the RAF had not been destroyed and called off his invasion of Britain, the first time he had suffered a defeat. The Luftwaffe lost just under 2,000 aircraft during the battle and took 4,200 casualties. The RAF lost 1,087 fighters and suffered 1,900 killed and wounded. While losses were heavy on both sides, the British had two key advantages. RAF airmen shot down over England often rejoined their squadron to fight again, while German aircrew would become prisoners of war. And second, the British had an efficient repair organization, which returned damaged aircraft quickly to battle, while damaged German aircraft often had to ditch in the channel and were lost. There was another advantage that made it very clear why the British had the upper hand. Well, in war, always let the enemy be the best judge. German fighter general Adolf Galland put it perfectly and succinctly. I quote him. From the first, the British had an extraordinary advantage. Their radar and fighter control network carried to the highest level of technique. We had nothing like it. The fact that the British had anticipated electronic warfare jamming and had incorporated circuitry to defeat it paid dividends. The fact that the German had, Germans had failed to appreciate the British use of radar and that their 1939 Elint missions to uncover its secrets had failed arguably cost the Luftwaffe the battle. BAE Systems, we're developing full-spectrum, multi-domain electronic warfare capabilities that outpace the threats. Our electronic warfare systems are designed to be open, reprogrammable, and exportable to deliver on the U.S. Air Force's operational vision of the electromagnetic spectrum. We're committed to delivering electromagnetic spectrum superiority to the warfighter where it matters most. Learn more at baesystems.com ew. That's baesystems.com slash EW.
Early in the Battle of Britain, the Germans used an Enigma code to send encrypted classified messages over thousands of miles. The British had made only a few breaks into the code, but with these breaks, they were able to discover the strengths of German aircraft and they planned accordingly. The Luftwaffe had to adapt quickly and they ended up employing a different type of offense. After the daylight battle faded out in the autumn as the days grew shorter, the Luftwaffe turned to night bombing, for which they were well equipped. Under Martini, the Germans had developed not one, but three different radio navigational beams, which were accurate enough for bombing also. It was here that British breaks into the Enigma Code paid significant dividends. Two years before World War II, Germany sent aircrew and aircraft to take part in the Spanish Civil War. It was this experience that convinced the German head of signals and radar, Martini, that the Luftwaffe needed precise and accurate navigation. The German airline Lufthansa carried short-range, blind landing beam approach equipment on their civil aircraft. Beams are radio signals that bounce from tower to tower. With beams, pilots don't need to see where they're flying. They can find their direction solely by listening for the beams. Germany decided that with these beams, they could fly more precisely and carry out strikes. Lufthansa's beam equipment, however, was only for short range. So the Luftwaffe began building more powerful equipment with bigger antenna to lay down radio beams over ranges of 300 miles. The first beam was codenamed Nickerbind, or Crooked Leg. Powerful transmitters in Germany with huge steerable antennae were used to lay down two radio beams, one for the bomber to follow using its blind landing receiver and a second beam crossing the first to mark the target. When France was occupied by the Germans, a chain of transmitters was quickly set up so that almost the whole of Britain could be covered by these beams. After the beams were set, the British discovered something that alerted them to these mysterious signals. RAF scientific intelligence was coordinated by a bright young scientist called R.V. Jones. Papers recovered from crashed German bombers showed him, as early as May 1940, that there were radio beacons called Nickerbine, and a prisoner confirmed both that Nickerbine was a radio beam system and that there was a second beam system called Excarate. The British codenamed these beams Headaches. Then, in early June, an Enigma decrypt gave a specific Nickerbine beam bearing intended to aim for the steel town of Sheffield. Another prisoner was heard to boast that the RAF, quote, would never find Nickerbine. So Jones probed the experts who had investigated crashed German bombers. At first, they saw nothing unusual. But then they realized the blind landing receiver was much more sensitive than it needed to be for short-range blind landings. This information was groundbreaking. So R.V. Jones told Professor Frederick Lindemann, the trusted advisor of Prime Minister Winston Churchill. He invited Jones to brief a meeting of the British War Cabinet. Churchill was there and listened, as Jones gave clear explanations as to why this information was alarming. Churchill understood the threat and ordered an electronic intelligence flight to find such a beam, known to be on the 30 megahertz band. Experts believe that such a beam could not reach Britain due to the curvature of the Earth. But Jones used Churchill's name to launch the flight. Using an American Hallicrafters S-27 receiver, signals were detected of a beam 
which passed over Derby's Rolls-Royce factory, the only one making the Merlin engines for all British fighters, a clear and present danger. Hospital diathermy machines were hastily modified to transmit on the beam frequencies. Later, they were superseded by specialised jamming transmitters, codenamed Asprins. More aircraft were detached to find the headache beams, so that Asprins, near targets, could be switched on or mobile jammers moved up. Much later, these aircraft would form the RAF's 109 and then 192 EW squadrons. These countermeasures did not work all the time, but did sufficiently well to avoid much damage and many casualties. Another German prisoner had let slip that there was a second beam, an ex-Garat beam. Sir Jones was on the lookout for any mention of it. In early September 1940, an Enigma intercept not only confirmed the beam, but also identified the Luftwaffe Pathfinder unit which specialised in its use. Kampfgruppe KG-100, based at Vannes, northern France. Further Enigma intercepts gave details of Exgarade. It used four beams in the 70 MHz band, one main beam, which the bomber would follow, and three cross beams, which allowed a special, accurate clock to be set. This clock precisely controlled the dropping of flares and incendiaries directly over the target to mark the target for the main force of bombers who had trained with Nicobine but not the more complex Excarate. The British codenamed the new beams Ruffians. The Royal Air Force made powerful 70 MHz jammers against these Ruffians and they codenamed them Bromides. But radio jammers have to be precise and these were hastily built and set into position before defense forces were fully trained and ready to use them the lack of precision ended up causing major damage. The city centre of Coventry was flattened because the modulating signal on the 70 MHz carrier was wrongly measured as 1.5 kHz rather than 2 kHz, the difference between a whistle and a shriek, and sensitive audio filters in the excarate eliminated the British jamming. The special unit set up in October 1940 to control British ground-braced RCM, the RAF's 80-wing, gradually gained the upper hand. But it was a new unit with much to learn, and this took time. Time was running out, so the British tried three more strategies to jam the beam signals and defeat the blitz of German bombers. First, on the 13th, 14th of November, two British bombers directly attacked the Sherberg Excarate transmitter by homing onto its transmissions. Such attacks only rarely hit the tiny target, but it did cause the operators to switch off the beam in haste. Secondly, it was known that the Germans might try to use radio direction finding, DF, on the positions of known British transmitters, for example, the BBC. The British countered this by linking together all the BBC transmitters in such a way that the aircraft DF receivers either could not focus on any individual transmission to obtain a bearing or focused on the wrong one. The same tactic, called masking beacons or MECONs, was extended to all the RAF's medium wave navigational beacons so effectively that one German aircraft 
completely misled, landed in Britain in mistake for France. A third tactic was more basic. Near target cities, sites codenamed Starfish, were set up in open country, with decoy street and factory lighting, and the ability to simulate fires and bomb blasts, the aim being that bombers' attention would be drawn away from their actual aiming point and drop their bombs on the decoy. Starfish proved very successful in some cases, but not in others. For example, east of London, Britain's capital, London, the wide estuary of its River Thames narrows down from the sea to the city centre. And at night, this expanse of water resembles a clear, undisguisable arrow pointing to the heart of the City of London. The Luftwaffe Blitz of London and other British cities cost 40,000 lives, with many more severely injured. The British were then alerted to a third beam, the German Weigerat. It had been mentioned in the July 1940 Enigma decrypt under the codename Wotan. The codename gave the clue to that system's operating with a single beam down which the bomber flew, its distance along the beam being measured by the faintest difference in the modulating waveform, measured using a retransmission to the German gr- ground station. Weigerate operated on the 45 MHz band, which happened to be the British BBC pre-war television frequency. The happy outcome being that the BBC TV transmitter at Alexandra Palace in London became the world's biggest countermeasures transmitter, Domino. This transmitter re-radiated a Y-Garate signal received elsewhere in the UK and fed to it by landline. The resulting confusion of signals received in the bombing aircraft rendering the system unusable and causing the aircrew to doubt their equipment. By spring of 1941, all three beams had been discovered and countered. The Royal Air Force began to dominate British skies with radar-equipped night fighters. The Luftwaffe had no choice but to withdraw and prepare for the German attack on Russia. The Battle of Britain, the Night Blitz, and the Beam Wars were the first major battles where electronic warfare was fully employed. After these battles, military operations were forever different. Implementing electronic warfare was, and is, an absolute necessity to gain the advantage over your enemy. By the end of 1941, the key players of World War II were established. Join us in our next episode as the story continues with D-Day and learn how electronic warfare would become the needed undercurrent to win the war. This podcast is brought to you by the Association of Old Crows. Thank you to our episode sponsor, BAE Systems. Learn more at crows.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening.